Bob Ray is a senior counsel to the law firm Ultius. Ultius, it sounds almost Roman. Ultius is uh, it's a Dutch name. It's actually the Canadian pronunciation. In Dutch, it would be Ultius. Hmm. Clear, is that uh, Dutch as well? Dutch as well. Dutch, we have a couple of Dutch, uh, Dutch reform devotees. And Townsend, LLP, and teaches public policy and governance at the University of Toronto. He has been elected 11 times federally and in Ontario. Bob served as Ontario's 21st Premier as well as interim leader of the Liberal Party of Canada from 2011 to 2013. He's married to Arlene Pearlie Ray and lives in Toronto. He is currently the special envoy to the Rohingya crisis. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Good to be with you, Nigel. This is a podcast about books, and uh, I'd like to, this is a bit, uh, uh, it's not current, but it's certainly topical, (laughs) a book that you wrote uh, just prior to the previous election. That's right. Called What's Happened to Politics. On the back cover, it says this, that you put forward a vision for the future of politics and a call for a more inclusive political process. So was that your primary objective, putting that book out at the time that you did? Well, it was more to talk about, uh, to try to explain a little bit how, in my, in my experience, my personal experience, how politics has changed. And I was taking the reader a little bit through you know, my political experience starting in 1978 when I was first elected to the House of Commons mm-hmm. and then to, to when I left in 2013 and how I'd you know, definitely seen an evolution. Who's that? I wonder. I've had lots, I've had lots of sirens in the background. That's right, they're not coming for me. No, no. In case you're wondering. <laughs> All my books have a kind of personal element. People would say it's... It's the narcissist in every politician. You can't, you mm-hmm. can't. But to me, it's a way of trying to bring the, the, the reader into, you know, this is how I've seen it, and then expand that a little bit to saying, and, and by the way, this is what this is what we know from the literature, what we know, what's happening, more broadly, more globally, in terms of how the how this is affecting things. So I, I think the I think the point of the book is really to talk about uh, how we need to understand that the the, the political process has become more more partisan, uh, more angry, uh, and that everything in the social media world that we're seeing is just blowing this up, you know, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm actually working on another book now called Truth and Consequences, which is a sequel to this book, and, and it goes into the work I've been doing in indigenous politics in the country and, and the work I've been doing on the Rohingya crisis and how these kind of come together in a process that is not positive. Uh, it's not because I'm a pessimist. I'm not pessimistic. No, no. I don't say let's all give up and you know move to a desert island. But it, it is to say it's a it's these are these are challenging challenging times. Yeah, I mean the book uh, itself was, was although you said it wasn't partisan, it really did heap a lot of criticism on Harper. Um, Sorry, I just couldn't help it. Yeah, <laughs> your team won, and we got pretty well exactly the same kind of thing. Lies, bullshit. So my question is, if you, as a senior member of the ruling party, can't do anything, 
How can ordinary Canadians hope to make a difference? Well, I mean, I, you know, first of all, part of me would take, you know, would take issue with your, you know, overall description of saying, well, you know, it's exactly the same. But, but policy-wise, but, it's but, not. No, but certainly with I mean. the lies and the broken promises, we got a lot of lies, we got a lot of broken promises. Well, again, that's your opinion. Well, to, to which you're entitled. Reform, to, for example. To which, election, to which you're entitled. Election reform, for example. I, I would have liked to see more election reform. I've always been a, an advocate for election You propose that in the book. I propose it in the book. I believe in it. I believe it should happen. That's and yet, and you're one of the part, you're a member of this party. You're a, a senior member of this party, and it didn't who, happen. Who left in 2013? No, I didn't leave the party, but I, I, I left, left the I left a political levers of power. I left then. a political role and and I wanted to pursue two things. I wanted to do more teaching because I kinda see that as, you know, where I'm headed in, in the future in terms of my own life and role in terms of what I do. And also because <clears throat> I wanted to work more um, on the indigenous issue in Canada, uh, which I've been able to do at, at the law firm where we're sitting now. Mm-hmm. So those two things have come together and I've been able to t- I've been asked to take on this role in the Rohingya crisis so that's also been a, a very difficult but but completely fascinating exercise. Um, I don't feel that I've had I've had much influence over what's happened in Ottawa. I mean I, I'm not I can assure you I'm not on the end of any phones with people. Um, that, that isn't what happens. You that's know, what I was saying. When you, if, if, when you go, when you go, you're gone, and that's a, a general rule in politics. When you leave, you're you're not there, and when you're not there, you don't you know you don't get called much, and and that's not that's not to be critical of anybody uh, because mm-hmm. that's just a reality of how it of how it works. Change, yeah, yeah, but it's also um, you know politics is a bit of a cauldron, and. I think the people who are in the cauldron say, if, you know, if you're not in here, you know, you don't have no idea how hot it is. So we're not, we're not calling you because you, you know, you decided to leave and you, you know, you've gone off to do your thing. Mm-hmm. That's fine, and and uh, you know, we're going to have to deal with whatever we have to deal with. I do think some of the things, some of the trends that I noticed in um, what was happening in politics in a number of places. Look at how politics has been practiced since the age of John Kennedy, um, there's always been this element of showmanship. There's also been this element of very strong, fairly strict discipline and an effort to control things, uh, an effort to kind of manage the, the you know public opinion and public relations in a, in a much more kind of professional way, if you like, yeah. uh, in a way that, that drew in from the, of the commercial world of advertising and the commercial world of communication. You call it the aura of phony salesmanship. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And that hasn't changed. I mean, that is, that is the culture in which all politics is, is, uh, is operating. So what you need is a very powerful bullshit detector. I don't think you need a very powerful one. (laughs) No, but a good one that helps, an accurate one. And also you need to, I think, do a lot to help the public understand the process and also understand what they're being fed and how they're being, why they're being fed it in a particular way. And I think that that's even stronger now in terms of social media, how how the social media is creating a, a, a unique climate. And plus, you know, we've got the P.T. Barnum, of salesmanship in the United States. I mean, yeah. so he kind of represents the epitome of of how this process has gone. He's not a 
he's you know he's people say he's a businessman he say yeah he's a businessman the same way you know P.T. Barnum or a carnival barker is a businessman he's not yeah. a businessman he's yeah. he's a con man and that's what he's trying that's what he's trying to do your father wasn't a con man not at all <laughs> your father's uh, doctoral thesis was entitled public opinion and its measurement and he wrote a book with uh, George Gallup called The Pulse of Democracy. Why did he leave the polling business? Well, it was the war. He was he just married. My mother had come over from England. They met in England. He did his PhD at the LSE uh, in London in the late 30s, and he met my mother there. My mother was an English woman who was uh, lived to be 100. She died in, 2000, in 2014, and she's a remarkable lady. Uh, my dad had died earlier in 1999. And um, he, she came over as, when the war was breaking out in September. He'd already moved to Princeton. Did he realize that polling was again was not? Uh... I think he felt. I think he felt he kind of, you know, he felt he'd done that. And I think he, you know, the one comment he made to me, which which I repeat in the book, which is that you know, turning heads is more important than counting heads. Though actually, when he came to Ottawa, the first, the first uh, two or three years he was there, he worked on government. Poland, because Mr. King, the Prime Minister, wanted to know what the public was thinking about the war, and in particular, he wanted to know what the public was thinking about conscription, yeah. because conscription had been a hugely divisive and difficult issue in, in the first in the First World War in yeah. Quebec. You know, yeah. you had riots in Quebec City, and it was a, had divided the Liberal Party, and Laurier was fought the election on his own because uh, most of his cabinet had. From, from English Canada had left him and gone to gone to be, join the coalition government or the union government as it was called and and Mackenzie King was obsessed with what had happened and how that he didn't want that to happen to the Liberal Party again mm. so he he very much focused on you know how to how to deal with it and how to cope with with it and you know my father had a uh, he was a very junior guy, he was 25 years old, but he, he was the one guy in the, in the government who knew about polling so he mm. he helped them to organize the assessment of public opinion that was going on, and the government was very actively engaged in the polling business. Um, not about so much about partisan stuff as it was about this this one big issue. How to reflect what the public wanted, I suppose. Well, or? you know, and how to deal with it. I mean, Mr. King was always criticized for for being a ditherer. He actually wasn't so much a ditherer as he was uh, somebody who didn't believe in taking action if you could possibly avoid it because you didn't know what the consequences of that would be. And eventually, I think, anyway. But that you say, why did my dad do what he did? I think well, it's because well, he, you know, he was very much a person of conviction, and he he saw the limits. I think of the of the polling business. Okay. At that point, you say that as important as natural talent or strategy in a leader, because you have different sections, ones on leadership, in the book, character is all important. And. We don't see that right now. I think we do in some ways with some people. Um, I think the one thing we're learning to understand um, is that um, our leaders are human and make mistakes. And, and I think the other thing we understand better than ever is that the mistakes that our leaders make are more quickly and easily exposed. I mean, right. in yeah. politics in the past, a lot of things happened and people didn't talk about it. But like Kennedy's womanizing, yeah. Well, that's one example. I mean, that's a good example, but there are yeah. lots of examples. I mean, yeah. Churchill's, you know, drinking or a whole yeah. bunch of stuff, you know, that yeah. people kind of joked about, but yeah. but nobody really, really talked about it. Even Churchill's health. I mean, he, Churchill had, you know, a series of strokes. 
Yeah, depression. During too. the time he was prime minister, he suffered from depression. Today, you know, <coughs> Churchill would have to be out there, you know, giving speeches on mental health. I don't mean that just to be facetious, but it's it's a completely different time. <coughs> so, I think it's fair to say that the one challenge that everybody faces in public life today is that it's a life exposed, and and I think for many people it makes them feel very uncomfortable. And when that life is exposed, sometimes there are elements in the life that are found to be wanting. And people have to live with that. I mean, well, Joe, people, Bi- Joe Biden plagiarized his speech and he had to withdraw from the a leadership campaign. Now he's running again for the presidency. You know, people don't ask him about, you know, how that happened uh, anymore. They ask him about his son now. Now they're asking something else, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. so everything you do is subject to exposure and criticism. And that, I think, is, is why... It's it's more challenging and difficult to find uh, to find heroes, or, and it's not to say that nobody in public life has a good character. I think I think a lot of people have good character. It's just that they're not they're not perfect. They have frailties, and I think we all have to we all have to learn to live with those frailties when we look at leaders today. As you say, previous leaders may have had these. They just either the media agreed that they weren't relevant or didn't feel that it was appropriate to cover them, whereas now anything goes. There's a very good book I, I read years ago about President Roosevelt called The Splendid Deception. I can't remember the name of the author. He was himself had polio. And he wrote this book about Roosevelt's health because he wanted to make a point about how Roosevelt had done an incredible job together with his political advisor, Louis Howe, who was the guy who kind of you know managed his campaigns at the beginning. Uh, was his early political advisor, and they had determined that if if Roosevelt was seen as being sick or frail, or weak, uh, he he wouldn't be he wouldn't be taken seriously. So they basically were sort of really focused on how can we make sure that whenever you appear in public, yeah. you're going to be standing up. Yeah, and as I know, his sons used to his sons used to carry him up yeah. and everything else. Yeah. there wasn't there were no cartoons. Very few cartoons, shouldn't say no. no, very few cartoons of Roosevelt in a wheelchair. Yeah. But he wasn't a wheelchair. He, was in a, yeah. he couldn't walk. He, yeah. as, as this book author says all the time, he says, you know, Roosevelt had polio. He could not walk. His legs were paralyzed. And yet the way he managed to present himself was that he was physically a man of great vigor. The second thing it's is... It's a deception, that, isn't it? Yes. That's mm-hmm. why he calls it the splendid deception. Mm-hmm. Because the cause was... I mean, if you like, he was yeah. he was a leader who had many many other great qualities of inspiration and so on, but you know he himself had character flaws. People, there were people who worked with him who didn't like him, who found him to be deceptive, and and his his personal operating style was complicated. Um, but the other thing was that in the last five four years of his life, five years of his life, he had terrible heart disease that was never disclosed to the public, never disclosed to anybody. To the point where, at the end of his life, he he was only allowed to get up for about five six hours a day and stay in bed for like eighteen hours. They had, you know, remember those days they had no statins, they had no pills, they had no blood pressure medication, they had no beta blockers. None of that existed. Yeah. The only thing they said was, "Don't eat too much salt." So we had to eat Eleanor's cooking, which was terrible. That's now, what pushed them apart, is it? That's what, well, I think there were other things, <laughs> but but anyway, it's it, it's a it's a fascinating <laughs> thought that. You know, that here's the guy who, who was celebrated as the leader of the free world 
and was you know fighting uh, against Germany and Japan, yeah. and a great and vigorous leader. Yeah. And the reality was he was he was an extremely frail guy. He, he died at age sixty four of a massive uh, hemorrhage. Uh, you know when he was having his portrait done in yeah. in uh, Georgia. But speaking of deception, and maybe that's too strong a word, but I, I interviewed John Iverson recently about his biography of Trudeau, and his, one of his conclusions is that we're not seeing the we're not allowed to see the real person. Uh, they won't let him talk. They're just making him say talking points, and we don't get the real person because the real person screws up too much. Uh. I think I think it's a highly managed operation. I think I think that's true, and I think the people. So how do we get a character? How do we? I think the power's gone down. Yeah, thankfully this is. Thankfully, this is still going. Is it okay? And your batteries are operating. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, you say it's a highly managed operation. Yeah. Yeah, it's highly centralized. It's highly managed. It's very much trying to control the the image and control the message. Yeah, and I think you can tell from what I've written and said. You know that that was a part of politics that I always thought was bullshit. I yeah. mean, I just think it's overdone, and and you've got to be able to to you know to carry carry it yourself. And you've got to be well, able yeah, character. Like, you can't tell what his character is because it's just talking points. Well, well, you can tell his character because of things that come out in the press. Uh, I think that I think the point that people are trying to, to that need to come to terms with is that you know the prime minister, as I know him, um, is a person of tremendous energy, uh, of a tremendous resilience, mm-hmm. of tremendous emotional intelligence, and a, a person who has considerable abilities. Yeah. And none of those things are to be dismissed. And I think, you know, often when you say, well, you know, he, somebody said to me, he's not the smartest person in the room. And I said, doesn't matter. He, he's not, he's smart enough to know that he needs smart people around him. And, and is he a good person? That's important too. I think, I personally think he is a good person. Mm-hmm. I think he has tremendous um, awareness of other people. And the, to me, the terrible irony of this Blackface. All the, the blackface nonsense. Is that, I, I don't, I mean, I can't explain it. I can't, somebody said to me, you know, why would why would somebody do that? Mm-hmm. You know, why it, would somebody think it was a good idea to do that? It's just colossal poor judgment is what it is. Well, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a cha- it's, it's challenging to find a, a good explanation except to say it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but what I find, always find encouraging about the Prime Minister is, He's willingness to to recognize those things and say, "Yeah, I, I screwed up." And well, he I think, didn't. He didn't with Jody Wilson Raybould, though, because that's a different story. I mean, that's a different issue in terms of uh, you know what is the substantive issue with respect to uh, a deferred prosecution agreement for a large Canadian company uh, that uh, has again. Uh, on their own admission, done some things that should never have happened, and then the question becomes: Okay, what's the right what's the right policy choice for that kind of a? He wasn't alone in thinking that it was better to it was better to have the certainty of a deferred prosecution agreement than anything else. No, he wasn't. He wasn't the only person in Canada who thinks that. But he was ignoring the rule of law. I don't think so. Uh, I actually don't believe that. I actually think that's a mis- that's a that's not right. 
I think the 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 rule of law. Um, you don't interfere with prosecutions. Uh, well, actually, in, if you look at the at the law with respect to the deferred prosecution agreement, it is entirely appropriate for a government to decide uh, after due consideration, uh, and a minister of justice to decide after due consideration how you will proceed on a on a matter of a deferred prosecution agreement. It's, it's the, completely it's the, different. It's, it's the it, attorney general. It's not. It's not the prime minister. That, yeah, that's correct. And, and I think he understood that. I think he's repeatedly said it was always going to be her decision. Now, if you say to me, is this something that was handled perfectly? No, I think he admits he said it wasn't handled perfectly. If you say to me, he's not somebody who believes in the rule of law, I would say, no, that's not true. Okay. You complain about incessant campaigning replacing governance. Yeah, the, we live in the world of the permanent campaign. Uh, it didn't start with... Mr. Trudeau, by all means, I mean, started, I think, a long time ago in the U.S. And I think to some extent it's always been true that, um, you know, politics is, is, is a fact of life. Uh, and, and it's why people are in power is because mm-hmm. of politics. That's how they got there. Yeah. So if, they, if somebody says, oh, they're just being political, you sort of say, well, how the hell do you think they got there? Mm-hmm. Of course they're going to be political. And they want to stay there. But there is a moment in the life of a government where it used to be. I mean, I'm just saying this is how I, you know, I think... You know, I could, you could see it would be a moment when you'd say, okay, um, you know, we won the election. Now let's get back to business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, why didn't they implement what you wrote in this damn book? Because I, I think, I think it's all full of wonderful suggestions. <laughs> well, I, I think it is too. But I think because they feel that, that that's all very well and good, but actually. The way things are done now is by running these campaigns all the time. And I happen to think that in the end, people get fed up with it. People get totally turned off by it and and totally frustrated by a House of Commons where one party is is mouthing slogans and calling the other each other party, racist. And right? the other no, but the other but it's also the sloganeering that goes on. It's the yeah. it's the messaging. It's like Yeah, the repetitive. Use, I mean I tell the story in the house where you know, after being away for 25 years, I come back as a as a new member in 2007 or eight, whatever it was, and um, and you know I get invited to the first question period meeting and and the rehearsal. I said, "What the hell's a rehearsal?" Yeah. And they said, "Oh, we all we have to rehearse your question." I said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, do you have it written down?" I said, "No, I've never written down my questions. Why would you write them down?" Uh, well, you know, you have to. I said, "Well, you need to know what you're what you're going to be asking." Yeah. And you need to know what you're saying, but I'm looking at you, Nigel, as we're talking. And the best way for me to communicate with you is to establish eye contact mm-hmm. and to be able to look at you. If I'm looking down and looking, and you're looking at my forehead, yeah. it does. You can't. That's connect. all I do is read them out. It's and, and speech talking speeches are not about reading something that's written. Speeches are about talking directly and communicating directly with people. Yeah. And. That's the way you can tell whether you're losing an audience because people start shaking their heads and their body language goes all cold and they look sideways at you mm-hmm. and you know I'm losing these, I'm losing this guy yeah. <laughs> like he's not like you know when you disagree with what I'm saying uh, I can tell that you're not happy with what I'm saying it doesn't mean I change what I'm saying but it means you you want to mm-hmm. have an argument you're going to put forward another point of view yeah that's what a conversation is about 
And what I'm saying is we've lost the art of a political conversation because the House of Commons is one example, but there are millions of examples where nobody's having a conversation. And there are other aspects of, of, of how you, you cope with people. A lot of times, in, if you're having a sensible discussion with somebody, if we're talking about any topic, subconsciously, I'm probably saying, I could be wrong, you know, I, I, I could be wrong about this. But, yeah, that's but, the idea of a conversation, right, isn't it? Because you're yeah. admitting that you're wrong. Yeah. You're admitting that you don't know the answer when you start the conversation. And that you could change your mind. Totally, because of what you say. Mm -hmm. Which is why, and here I am talking all the time, but which is why, and that's the trouble with the podcast, you're always talking, <laughs> is which, which is why listening is ultimately more important than, than talking. Because mm -hmm. if you're listening, you're really, in, you're, if you're actively listening to people, you're actually hearing something that they're telling you, and then you're saying, oh, okay, I, I could have done that differently, or maybe I should be thinking differently about this question. Yeah. And you're not just... Well, and it's insulting piling, too, isn't it? It's piling in, it on. It's insulting just to talk talking points to someone else right past them. It's like uh, you don't respect them. And there's no, there's the lack of respect in the, in the house. Yeah, there's a complete lack of respect, and there's also a complete lack of a willingness to admit that something that's being said actually could 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 change your mind. Yes. And, and I think in my life, this is not just true professionally or politically, but it's also personal. I think probably most of the big mistakes that I've made in my life have been because I haven't listened. Yeah. Like really listened. Yeah. yeah. And understood what the other person was trying to tell me. It's, it, in terms of being an interviewer, it's the most important thing. I have to listen to what you say. Otherwise, my questions will be out of left field and not relevant to what we're talking about. Well, there's that famous Bob and Ray, you know Bob and Ray, the, the American comedians? In the fifties, yeah, that might be a bit bit old for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, I'm like, pretty old. You know, like a kid. That's what for I mean, sure. Is, is a famous interview. Bob and Ray. Bob ne and Ray. Yeah. Never heard. Of, I've heard of Bob Ray. Bob Ray, but Bob but, and Ray. No, never heard of them. Uh, two American comedians who are really funny, mm -hmm. and uh, and you can get them on YouTube. Okay. And the best you should get the YouTube interview on Komodo Dragon. Okay. Uh, because it's a classic case of. The interviewer who doesn't listen. <laughs> it's very funny. Good. Well, I'll write plus that, the, down. that one plus the slow talkers of America, which is also very funny. But they, they have some genius takeoffs. Okay. And I would say the worst radio experiences that I've had, the worst interviews I've had, yeah. have been with uh, journalists who had a point of view and and didn't want to be knocked off their point of view. Yeah. And didn't listen to a word you were saying, so yeah. that you know they would just <laughs> you just end up going around around in circles, having an argument, yeah. which is like a Monty Python sketch where you're you know you're just you're in the argument room because you're just <laughs> just having an argument. It's just ridiculous. The most positive underlying force in any society is trust. When they are weakened, anything can happen. Like what? That's what you say. Anything can happen. Well, I think mistrust leads to, um, it, it, well, trust is a hugely undervalued thing in society. In fact, you know, the, the retiring governor general, a guy who was, David Johnson, who was governor general, wrote his, the book that he wrote recently called Trust, yep. by that very name. Yep. And, and he talks about its importance in a number of different ways. 
in life, in business, in, in politics, in, in a whole variety of ways. But, you know, in every relationship, you know, trust is, is, is critical, whether it's two people, whether it's 10 people or 20 people or 40 people or 80 people, whatever it may be. Mm. And I think once trust goes, then, then you're living in a society where um, it becomes entirely a function of power uh, and uh, who can get what, who can grab what. Uh, and who can take what and keep what, and and no sense of uh, mutual obligation, no sense of you know how, what, what is fair dealing, and what, how do you shake hands? Mm-hmm. I can remember a businessman that I was working with as a as premier, uh, who came into my office and you know where the province was in very bad shape, and he was seeking to do some, you know, to establish a commercial relationship with the province. Uh, in terms of uh, you know some businesses that he wanted to help the province run and organize and and he'd had bad a bad ex- previous experience with a bad, a bad experience with the previous government where he thought he had an understanding of a sale of a of a business and and it, it didn't work out and uh, he said I don't trust I don't trust you I don't not me personally but yeah. I don't I don't <coughs> trust the uh, you know the government of, of Ontario because mm-hmm. uh, you guys you know you you made a you 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 uh, gave me your word and you didn't keep it. And I said, well, I mean, all I can say is, is uh, I, you know, we, we want to do business with your company and, and we're going we're gonna to keep doing whatever we can to earn your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and So that's, that's sorry, that's the, uh, for example, when a promise is made in an election, like we're going to re- do election reform and we don't do it, Voters aren't going to trust that, so what the response should be is, we're, <laughs> we, we're, we still want to do it, we're going to try and do it, we're still here, uh, it's not over. Yeah, I mean, I think I went through this in my own political life. I mean, I, we committed to um, nationalizing auto insurance in Ontario, and, and after a year of working on it and looking at it and thinking about it every which way, we, I said, it isn't, this isn't worth doing at the moment. We've got other bigger issues on our plate, mm-hmm. so we're not going to do it. I went very public. I went to the public and said, we're not going to. I went to my cabinet, and I went to the caucus, and they eventually, and there was some, a lot of internal argument, eventually they said, okay, we agree. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody said, well, you broke your promise. And I said, well, yeah, I, I didn't. After looking at something, I looked at it again and said, I don't sure that's a great idea at the moment. And I postponed my promise. Or, or but, uh, but look at it again, we'll do other things, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll do other stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if people say, well, did that affect your credibility? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and similarly with Sunday shopping, I yeah. said, notice, I said, uh, we weren't going to do on Sunday shopping. And then as more and more people said, well, then we're going we're gonna to vote with our feet. We're going to go down to Buffalo and shop. And what are you going to do to stop us? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And people were, you know, businesses were coming in to see us saying, what are we supposed to do? How do we compete? And so eventually, again, that first year in government, I said, you know, we're going to have a free vote on Sunday shopping. And people can make up their own minds. I know I've changed my mind. I suspect other people have changed theirs. Yeah, and that's a sign of intelligence, changing your mind. That's right. But then when you change your mind, Nigel, you break your word because your word was given. And you said, this is what I'm going to do. It's not just about politics. It's true in life, right? Yeah. 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 You kind of say, well, that was then and this is now. And... Things have changed, and you know, and so, you know, and, and and that's that's not to defend breaking your promise. It's to say that 
actually, you know, in in purely utilitarian terms, it's it's worse to keep a bad promise yeah. than it is to break a bad promise. If you mm-hmm. think at the end it's a it's a promise I can't keep. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you learn from that? You, well, you learn to make fewer promises <laughs> because you you better be damn sure that the one you're making is the one you can keep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because otherwise, you've you know you completely um, lose. The trust yeah, why didn't Trudeau just and, say? Why didn't he just say, "Okay, I can't do it this term, but <laughs> but next term well, I will." But then they're saying, the, like, the problem that he had was, I mean, and I think really, you know, this is where you get into an argument about, well, did what did they know when they knew it? But the fact is, is that when he talked about electoral reform, he had a he had a specific idea in mind, right, which was a, a ranked ballot. Yeah, and when the other parties talked about electoral reform, they had a they had another idea in mind, and there are a whole variety of ways: proportional representation, and you know the Australian whatever you know method of of counting the votes, switching. It's complicated, mm-hmm. um, and and so I think they just figured, well, we're we're not going to get there. Uh, this group wants to do this. This group wants to do that. We don't want to do this. They want to do that. I, I happen to believe that we won't get electoral reform in Canada until and unless we have a, a minority parliament where the parties say, if yeah. you want this parliament to keep going, we're going to have to have something on electoral reform. Yeah. That's one thing. The second thing is... That's why minority governments are so good. It can be. Yeah. You know, I've been in several. Uh, I don't, Pearson, for example. Yeah. yeah, the Pearson government was, without question, was probably the most... In the five years of the Pearson government, yeah. it was the most productive government. In our history, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I still believe that that, that that success has been underestimated by mm-hmm. a lot of by a lot of uh, a lot of Canadians and a lot of a lot of people. Yeah. You know, you get these periods of reform and we it was interesting because Americans were going through some of the same changes in terms of their political changes and, you know, with Kennedy and Johnson, you know, civil rights and and Medi- Medicare for people over 65 and a whole bunch of other things they were doing. We were doing it, um, but uh, the Pearson government was a, was productive. It was chaotic, yeah. uh, but it was, it, it was productive. Inequality causes resentment to, to replace trust. These are all little gems that you're sprinkling throughout your book here. Yeah, well... I think I think one of the things that's happened in capitalism is that, um, and I talk about this in the other book that's on the table here, the yeah. three questions. Yeah, is that um, we we have gone through a period where you know, we went through a period where there were huge gaps between rich and poor in the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. We then had a series of reforms, introduction of income tax, social security whole bunch of other changes. Then we had the Great Depression, which was another catastrophe, a rebuild after the Great Depression where people said, we've got to do more to even things out and make sure that you know things aren't too unfair for people. Mm. And we maintained that after the war. There was kind of a deal to say, look, you know, we're going to have you know, businesses and we're going to have capitalism, but we're also going to have a degree of of stability in the relationship between, uh, between people. Mm. Um, and that really began to evap- really began to get badly hit by this process of globalization and the and the, the direction of 
of, uh, of inequality, the growth of... You say that globalization, wealth. for example, benefits those who already control wealth. Right. Yeah. And that's what we've seen. People, you know, the rich get richer, um, and that's what's happened. And there's been this huge enrichment of people um, in, a, in, a very in, in, in a very intense period of time. Yeah. Just going to quote you here. Yeah, this just is getting back to uh, the kind of messaging that that we hear all the time. Messaging has become narrow and repetitive with every activity of the candidate a rote repeat of repackaged whitewashed slogans defining the opposition in as vicious and dogmatic and that's you know you see Trump talking about the radical left Democrats. Defining the opposition in as vicious and dogmatic a way possible is now only half the game. The other half is repeat, repeat, repeat the message that has been crafted as your brand. Right. So tying that into the fact that public discourse has fallen off badly. Well, I mean, public discourse is, it's, it's very difficult to have a conversation. I've talked earlier about conversation. It's very difficult to have a conversation with somebody who's just repeating repeating propaganda all the time. I mean, we see this. It's, it's, it's a time of, of heightened propaganda, heightened messaging that's increasingly repetitive. The thing I think is, is quite interesting is that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work mm-hmm. because people just turn off. They, they hear the, 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 the blather and they, and they can't take it in anymore. They just turn, they just turn it off. Yeah. Um, well, you say, what can be done to ensure voters' voices are heard and politicians' platforms are honest and clear? So, what? Well, I mean, that's, I think, where we need to keep working on. I mean, we, we're now getting, we're now into the, the Gainsburger phase of an election campaign mm-hmm. where every, um, uh, every day there's a new... A new little little um, trinket, right? A new, a new little bite that's that's handed over to people. Like what? Well, you know, I'm going to cut your taxes this way. I'm going to. Oh well, yeah. I'm going to. You know, if you're I'm going to give you free. I'm going to give you care. this free dental yeah. care. I'm going to give yeah. you that. Yeah. And that, you know, you sort of listen to that. And you sort of say, well, yeah. And then what happens? So what happens if we have a recession in six months? Mm-hmm. Then what are you going to do? Yeah. So why isn't anybody asking that question? I mean, if you read the financial papers, they'll all say. You know, 50% of asset managers, people who manage everybody's, you know, money, pension money, or whether they're wealthy or everybody has them. You may not know it, but your money is being managed by somebody in some form or another. Mm. If you even if you're getting the Canada pension plan, it's being managed by somebody. Yeah. You no, know, 50% of asset managers say, yeah, there's probably going to be a recession, and the only argument is exactly when and how bad is it going to be. And if you look at Europe and China, the trade wars, all the things, you know, there's there's quite a lot of little storm clouds growing around. And so all these promises that are being made are being made on the premise of, I don't know, 2% growth and mm-hmm. relatively full on, you know, employment. And blue skies. Blue skies. And you say, yeah. well, what happens if the weather changes? What are you going to do then, buddy? Mm-hmm. And well, especially with such a huge deficit now. You know, we have a big debt. We don't have a huge deficit. No, we have a big the deficit. Debt. We have yeah. a, well, we, relative to GDP, relative, it's not bad. Not yeah. bad. We're under control. We're, yeah. It's all manageable. But, yeah. but it becomes a lot less manageable if there's a recession. And I'm not saying anything like 
disloyal or anything. I mean, just that's just kind of like a fact. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do if things, you know, how, how long do you think you can go without there being a downturn? So and what are you going to do in the downturn? So here are these promises being poured out right, again. Right, right. And you can't keep them all. No, not so at then, once. So that's the, that's the problem is I guess politicians think the more they promise, the more likelihood it is that they're going to get elected. But the reality is, is that is that if people have turned if, if people have turned you off, and, and and you see this in a lot of campaigns, is that when people get turned off, they you, just don't vote, right? Well, no, but they they don't believe anybody who says I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and they just say I'm sorry. You can pro- you can make a promise a day, but it actually isn't going to change my mind about it. I don't I don't like you. So if Nigel, you said to me, well, I'm going to give you five dollars, and you said I don't believe you, I don't like you, ten dollars, fifteen, twenty. You just you go through the campaign making these promises and doing all these things. I'd something, say, give it to me now. Something, Bob. something, give it to me now. Then I'll vote for you. Something will stick. You know, it's always. I mean, it's, it's funny in a way, but it's also crazy because the, all the system of communication. You know, no reporters are not sitting around saying, "Well, okay, Prime Minister, can you please tell us what are you going to do when the economy? Not if, but when." The economy starts to slow down and things start to happen because that's what happens in the life of a business cycle. That's prudent leadership. Yeah, we all know that. So what are your your plans? Uh, Or Mr. Scheer? Or uh, Jack Mates? And the honest answer is, well, I won't be able to keep my promises. Yeah, they say, well, how how high are you going to let the deficit go then? Is it going to be 50 or 75 or 100 billion? Like, what's the number? And these are like not, if you're at a shareholders meeting, people would say, well, you know, what happens when the economy goes bad? You know, what are you going to do then? You didn't answer my question, though. (laughs) Did you? You have to remind me what it was. (laughs) Trying to look it up here. (laughs) That's Uh, not like me. We're talking about, the the question was what, that's right. What can, can be done to ensure voters' voices are heard and politicians' platforms are honest and clear. So what can be done? More more direct communication by people who should know better about what's really at stake here. Now you're, you're squinting, looking very well, skeptical. Who's the, who are those people? People like you and me, other people. people well, who, we're doing people, our bit here. Well, we are, but I mean, I'm just saying more people have to be doing this. Like more, what? Well, Podcasts? Right, <laughs> what? Podcasts? Podcasts, writing, cre- doing everything we can to create a culture uh, where you say, well, look, it, it, I'm sorry, you, you, you can't just do this anymore. You Questioning. Know? Yeah, yeah you've got to change the culture that politicians then say, okay, I guess I have to tell, I have the, to, truth. Have to tell the truth. Yeah. And it's tough because you're, you're up against a whole bunch of forces, some of which, frankly, are in the, you know, the media is not really helping. The media like to think, and I, I, you know, I once did a debate with some media people about this, and, mm-hmm. and the media, one of the reporters said, you know, we are... We are the, the uh, you know, we put us in the swimming pool and we're there to clean it up. You know, we're to clean up the muck in the, the swimming pool. And I said to the reporter, and they did, I don't think they probably forgive me for it, I said, no, no, you're, you're part of the muck. You're swimming in that stuff just as much as anybody else. Yeah, and that's you can the see problem. And they're, you not, can see they're, not, uh, they're not unbiased. No, they're not unbiased, but you can also see it. I mean, the, the cult of celebrity... The you know the pundits yep. who say well now so and so has called the prime minister a liar so I've got to call him a scoundrel, and somebody else has said this about Shear so I've got to you know I've got to turn up the volume or people are going to turn me off. The established media are 
doing everything they can to hold on to some element of market share, then they're desperately trying to figure out how do we, you know, jack up the rhetoric and do something more that's going to save our, magically save our business. No, no one really thinking through how do I create a different business model that's actually going to be more successful. Okay, we're doing a lot of complaining here. <laughs> well, not complaining, I'm observing. No, but we are, you know, we, wanna, we want solutions though. Well, I think, I mean, I know it sounds awfully vague, but I think a lot of this, I mean, first of all, you change cultures, but then you can also change the laws. You can say, here's, here's what parties need to have to do in an election campaign. You could have a, uh, a legal framework for an election campaign which said you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. To be fair to... Well, sorry, sorry, even the, uh, what was it, the budget, PBA? Parliamentary budget officer. He's supposed to price out all these things, and the liberals are avoiding that, it seems. I think, I think, I think, that's a, I think it's bad to do that. I think it's important for, for us to create as many... I mean, uh, they're doing something, something that you, for example, just recommended was introduced, and now they're, they're trying to shirt that. I think you have to find, well, they say they're going to do it. The point is, is when... And yeah. the point is it should be done promptly. Premier McGinty actually brought in legislation that limited advertising of a partisan nature and also uh, said, you know, a government has to put out its, its budget and has to, has to indicate clearly where the, where the parliamentary finances, where the public finances are yeah. prior to the election campaign so that everybody knows. Yeah. I think you've got to go even further than that. I think you've got to have very, very clear laws and rules. Same thing, I would do the same thing for debates. I would be very clear about Well, they're what, avoiding the damn debate. No, debates. no. What he, yes, he is, he is avoiding a debate, but he's avoiding a debate that's been established by somebody that says, I'm having a debate, you've got to come. And we, do, we see that in, you know... No, what about the McLean's debate? That he should have been there. Why? 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 Because if the agreed, more opportunity that we have to judge him well, but on, then you, his, but then you, on no, his feet... You, what you need to do is what they did. They said, look, we're going to ask, we're going to create a commission... It's going to be politically neutral. Yeah, that's question mark. Well, you can't. David Johnson was uh, was appointed yes, by yeah. was appointed by by Stephen, Stephen Harper. Harper yeah. You can't. I I mean, I've known David Johnson for thirty five years. I have no idea how he votes. No idea what his politics are. He's mm-hmm. never never dis- never disclosed right. that to me. Okay. I've never thought of him as being a partisan person. Okay. But you've got to create more objective, more centers of objectivity that cannot be controlled by. The party, the party that's in power. You have to create more places where people are saying, "Sorry, in an election campaign, we demand that you tell us what things are going to cost. You tell us how you're going to pay for it, and you have as much objectivity as possible." And it's, it, it's not beyond our, our scope to do that. No, it's not. But you know, there were promises made to strengthen the role of the access to information, the commissioner that deals with that. And uh, they were—they've been avoiding that too. I mean, it's harder now to get information out of the government than it's ever been. Yeah, but you know, I don't—I don't, I don't really agree with that. I mean, I think we live in an age where there's more information available, more stuff, facts. You know, yeah. we're not suffering from any lack of information in, yeah, in our true. culture. That's true. I mean, you know, that's—I don't think that's a big problem. Your uh, chapter on uh, leadership. Uh, talks about three characteristics, vision, persuasion, implementation, and today's leaders rarely possess all three. The best leaders are well-rounded, determined, insightful, shrewd, and most important, able to command the attention of people around them. 
And I think I would add to that, you know, because I've been thinking more about it and reading more about it, Mm -hmm. thinking more about it. I think it it all has to do with this ability to listen and also the ability to accept criticism. Um, I I Mm -hmm. was reading the other day, somebody said that that the people that they thought were able to lead most effectively were people who were able to listen really carefully and also who were really able to accept criticism and accept the need to kind of say, well, that's your plan, but you know, where do we, what do you think of my plan? Mm-hmm. So often we have this vision of a leader is like, you know, Moses coming down from the mountaintop saying, you know, I've got, here, here's the commandments and follow me. But as we all know from reading our Bible, we, you know, Moses' journey was, <laughs> was a bumpy one, mm-hmm. to put it mildly, and he never actually got to see the promised land. I mean, he got to see the promised land, but he didn't get to lead people to it. So I, I think by analogy, I think, I think we, expect, <clears throat> we expect our leaders to be, sometimes we expect them to be superhuman. And, and, and when you get into cults of leadership, which are unhealthy, those cults are based on people's desire for order and conformity and, and, uh, and, and they want to be led, you know? They want to be dragged yeah. along and take me where you're going. I don't, I don't think that's what we would call good leadership today. I don't think that, that's a healthy thing. Yeah, you say that polarization should not be the new norm. Uh, People want moderate, intelligent politics based on evidence, good values, and compromise. Yeah, I believe that. I think it's true. I mean, you know, obviously part of my my education as as a human being and education as a political person was based on my time in office where, you know, I made mistakes and... And the government, you know, had to govern in a very difficult time. And it took me, it took me a while to kind of really, really feel comfortable <laughs> that there were things that had to be done that were not going to be easy, but we had to do them. Mm-hmm. I felt that we, you know, we needed to. And that <clears throat> where I think I failed was in my ability to bring everybody along. And um, obviously, you know, split my party and, <laughs> and, uh, um, lost uh, the next election quite, quite badly. So you sort of say, well, you know that that didn't work out. And you say, well, no, it didn't. I don't think the the effort to kind of find solutions was wrong, but obviously there was something missing in the implementation. To put it mildly, <laughs> I'm interested though about the command, the attention of people around them. What, what do you what do you mean by that? Exactly? Well, I think you have to be able to. Um, you have to be able to persuade. You, you know, I mean, you you can't just govern by consensus. I mean, I you know, I I watch. I mean, the Labour Party in England, which is is one of the truly, truly dysfunctional institutions of our time. And Corbyn is a leader, you know, as leader of the party. Whenever things get difficult, he says, "Well, we've got to have another conference, and we've got to have another meeting, and we've got to go back and you know hear from the people and all this." stuff and it, to me it's just a sign of weakness doesn't want to make a decision doesn't yeah. want to get to that point I think it's hard to succeed if you do that you can't be just a mirror no purely majoritarian theories of democracy are not good enough a richer view is required so what's that richer view well it, it's a richer view that respects minority opinions and respects the rule of law and and respects 
the fact that there are a lot of things that go into making a democracy. You know, this this uh, cult of referenda, uh, this cult of, you know, the people have spoken when you have a majority of 51 or 52 percent is is illusory. And, and it it creates a sense that, you know, if by appealing to this fictitious <coughs> people who have one voice, mm. that somehow is linked. What's linked to that is the theory that there's a leader who has a kind of pipeline to that one voice. And I can't stand it when leaders say, "Canadian, what Canadians want right, is right." That's just bullshit. If you talk to Canadians, if you ever really go out and talk to Canadians, which I've done on a lot of occasions, you'll find that people have a whole variety of opinions, and that mm. and that mostly the the extremes on whatever side or whatever corner of the debate don't really command the the majority support mm. um, but you really got to figure out how to how to work with with people to you know to build a, a consensus and an approach and the, the the approach that says well it's all about the power of the majority two two or three things i think one is majorities can be wrong just as minorities can be wrong so we shouldn't we shouldn't make a cult of it you know, we need to understand that uh, democracy is is a lot more complicated than people think. It's a lot richer than people think. It's got a lot more nuance to it and, and crevices and, and little places where people are able to be themselves. Well, and it gets back to your point about listening. Yeah. Really, doesn't it? Totally. But also respecting them, and I think that's one of the things that we live in a federal country, which I think is good. Uh, we live in a country where you know we have a Supreme Court, and we have a we have a commitment to a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I think those are all mm-hmm. very important features of our of our country. Just winding down here, um, you talk about the fact that power is increasingly centralized and revolves around the personality and control of the Prime Minister and his. Uh, advisors, and that uh, it's true. I've long said this: is uh, you get a majority government in Canada, and the prime minister can act like a dictator. Well, <coughs> only for very short periods of time, because <laughs> the reality is that there are always limits on your power, even if you think you've got a majority. I mean, I had I ran a majority government for five years, yeah. and you think you, if you think that that's that means that whatever you say goes, no, it doesn't, because. You're in a framework of public opinion. You're in a framework of what's uh, what's politically feasible and acceptable. And even if you think you've got a majority, the reality is your members can say, well, we're not going to support you if you do that. And yes, but the, that, that's the corollary to this is that MPs and party discipline turns them into bobbleheads. No, it doesn't. I mean, it, do, it, it could in a cartoon maybe. But the reality is, is that when you go into a caucus meeting, you hear from members, and they have views. Not in public, they don't. Not always publicly. But the reality is, is that, I mean, I've been through this, right? I mean, I've I've lived this. Is that if members say, well, no, we, you know, we we can't we can't agree with that, or we're not going to allow that to to happen. You then face a situation where you you have to you have to climb down as leader, and if you climb down, a mutiny, you, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but if you climb down too much, then you're done. That's just the reality. So you're always you're always governing with a degree of support, and if you lose that support, you're you're pretty well done. 
You make the point that uh, toward the end of the, the book, and the book is that what's happened to politics, and Jerry Butts might agree with this, <laughs> politics are too important to be left to politicians. Well, I mean, what do you I mean, mean by that? I, what I mean by that is that um, we need to embrace the fact that we're all politicians. One of the things that I've always disagreed with is a sense that you hear from some journalists and, and, and some, some stuff on the social media and so on saying, oh, you politicians, you're all a bunch of, you're all, do, yeah. you, you all do this. Yeah. So to say, well, you're implicated in this too. I mean, you're, you're, you're part of the political process. Everybody's part of the political process. Politicians are not members of some preordained class of people. They're, yeah. they're just like you. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, and, I, so. and, and you, and you, I think people need to have that sense that, you know, they, they share in this responsibility. Sometimes politicians are doing things because they think that's what people want them to do or what people are demanding that yeah. they do. They say, well, no, you have to do this. Yeah. And then you do that and it doesn't work. And then you turn around and say, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're in trouble. So you've got, there's got to be a much more honest dialogue between in between all of us, about what do, what do we expect from the political process? Yeah. Do you expect perfection? What, what in your personal life would you lead you to think that any of these things are easy to do, mm-hmm. or that you know you're or asking, getting people to agree to, you or know. you're asking people to say, well, do you want less of this? Everybody says, I want more health care. I'm getting older. Don't cut back on health care. You say, okay, that's actually the biggest part of the provincial budget. So what else do you want me to cut? Nothing. How about your taxes? Do you want to raise them? No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's, it's a zero sum game it's, here. It's going to be a little difficult to to yeah. meet the test here. Yeah. So you kind of have to have a more, and it's hard. I think we we get very caught up in uh, you know demanding and and getting angry when people say, well, you know, and you got to there's got to be much more of a dialogue. Say, okay, how do you want us to do this? How do we? Yeah. How, how, how do you think we should proceed? There's no magic in this. You know, there's a limit to what anybody, any government can spend. There's a limit to what anybody government can borrow. Yeah. And, and well, often, to, as you say, it's a choice between awful and less awful. Yeah, that's what it is. I mean, that's yeah. that's where I think one of the easy views is is that you choose the right path or the bad path. You know, it's not that easy. You're yeah. choosing between yeah. oh, 50, 50 degrees of gray. You yeah. know, yeah. which which way do we go here? Just finally, uh, I want to quote from uh, the end of uh, the three questions. Uh, it's about the future. And uh, this was written in 1998, more, right. than, more than 20 years ago. If the rising tide fails to lift all boats, resentments will increase. Sometimes these resentments will find their expression in too much nationalism in resistance to immigration, in gender wars, or in varieties of religious fanaticism, often they find a home in a climate of public mean-spiritedness that appeals to our baser instincts. So uh, I want you to use that same crystal ball that you used 20 years ago and tell me what's going to happen in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Well, maybe that's your next book. <laughs> yeah, the next book is called Truth and Consequences. It's going to be about, you know, what happens when truth, um, and we haven't talked about truth and mm-hmm. facts and all the role of that. Yeah, and, and, and what is true and what is not true. We all have our own truths. 
Well, but that's not. I, that, well, that's the that's that's the reality, though. No, but the, but well, then you say, well, is there any such thing as objectivity? Are there any facts yeah. that people can agree on? And um, that's, I think, one of the key issues that we face uh, increasingly. But well, how do we have a rational debate about politics if we can't agree on? You know, is there such a thing mm-hmm. as truth? Evidence. We need evidence. We need we need decisions. evidence, but we also need to have. A, a willingness to to embrace a, a, a what I call these centers of objectivity. We need to have places where we agree that there will be more places that will reduce the capacity of people to uh, to abuse power. And you know, I think what I said in 1998 is still true. I mean, I think what I said was absolutely proved to be absolutely. Bang based. on. You know, I mean, it was. <laughs> That's why I'm saying I want yeah. you to use that same crystal ball. Well, tell me what's going to happen in the next five. I, I think we face. I think what's what we face now are even more intense uh, challenges because the the structures in the world that we create that we created after World War II to kind of uh, deal with a, a post-war structure that world is is is, is gone. Trump di- didn't so much Brexit didn't so much blow it up as really just express its you know its most loud decline, you know, but we now have to face up to the fact that we're going to have to rebuild. And I'm not so much predicting, I don't predict what will happen as much as say there are still opportunities for people to do the right thing, but it's going to require... What does rebuild mean, though? What does it mean? Well, you've got to rebuild the world of the rule of law globally. We, you know, we, we need to keep on finding ways for people to uh, accept diversity and accept, a, you know, a an incredibly complicated and difficult, challenging world, in ways that you know, say that you know, na- nationalism as it's currently being expressed in the world is not a healthy thing. It's yeah. not a good thing. It's, it can look be what very it destructive. But, yeah, look what it ended up in, and that uh, is heightened by the threat of climate change and and the reality that the planet itself is at stake. And I, I don't. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm not, I don't believe in that because I. I believe a lot in the capacity of each generation as time comes up. And for the longest time, you know, I was saying to, you know, people younger than I was, I said, it's your turn. Get, get into it. You too. And I, the thing that encourages me the most about what we're seeing today mm. is that it's 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, yes, yes. you know, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, getting in. That's the generation. And I, more power to them. And hopefully in the next 20, 25 years, I'll still be around, able to watch what's going on and, and uh, participate in it. Well, thanks for participating in this. Uh, thanks, good conversation. Uh, the book is What's Happened to Politics, published by Simon & Schuster. As I say, it's a, a really useful blueprint. I think politicians should damn well read this and still, implement it's still, it. It's still on, the, still on the market. You can still buy it. That's good. Good price. <laughs> uh, same. I, had, I didn't get a chance to read the three questions, but uh, it's what is it? A similar kind of approach. Yeah. And again, remind me if you could of uh, the next book. Uh, well, tentatively titled "Truth and Consequences," okay. and it's really about how uh, populism and the, the crisis that I predicted in <laughs> twenty-five years ago, which has now come to us, how that re- requires. We require new political forces to, to, to deal with it. 
But in order to deal with it, we need to understand where it comes from. And it partly comes from economics, it partly comes from uh, the inequalities and the disruptions that we see in the modern economy that are really very profound for people. And it also partly comes from the human element in globalization, which is that people are moving around. And we are looking globally at, at mass, massive shifts in immigration and patterns of, of uh, migration. And these are posing huge challenges for better off nations who, like us, Europeans and others, and uh, you know, it's created a very different political atmosphere, a very difficult climate to, to work in. I think we have to be aware of it, plus climate change. You put all these things together, it's a, it's a whole new, not new, but it's a, it's a, it's a challenging, challenging time. Just one final uh, request. Can you just tell me what your message to Canadians is uh, in advance of them voting? First of all, vote. Uh, don't give up. Don't, don't give in to the people who say it doesn't matter and it doesn't count. And the second thing is to say vote. Vote with your reason and your passion. Um, I don't think reason and passion are two different things. I think we have to vote with both of them. And, by the way, only vote once. <laughs> Thanks very much Thank for you. your time. Good Speaking talking with, to you. Uh, Bob, Bob Ray is a uh, senior counsel with the law firm of uh, Ultius Clear Townsend in Toronto and teaches public policy and governance at the University of Toronto. Thanks again. Thank you, Nigel.